David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 180 of A History of England. On Sunday, the 11th of October 1908, the suffragettes Emmeline Pankhurst, her daughter Christabel, and Flora Drummond, all of them leaders of the Women's Social and Political Union, or WSPU, harangued the crowd in Trafalgar Square, urging them to join a rush on Parliament on the following Tuesday. All three were arrested on the day of the rush, the 13th of October, so they took no part in it. 60,000 other people, however, did turn up and tussled with 5,000 policemen who successfully kept them out of the Parliament building. The three arrested leaders faced breach of the peace charges. Christabel Pankhurst had recently graduated in law from the University of London. It would be 14 years before the first woman represented a client in an English court, but Pankhurst could, and did, defend herself. Having learnt that Lloyd George had been in the crowd at the Trafalgar Square rally, she called him as a witness. Her questioning was a masterclass in the art. Having established that he was at the event, she went on. You are not alone, I think, Lloyd George. No, I had my little girl with me, Pankhurst. How old is she, Lloyd George? She is six, Pankhurst. Did you think it safe to bring her out, Lloyd George? Certainly. She was amused, not frightened. Having established that the peace had clearly not been breached, she went on to ask whether any of the three women charged were ordinary criminals or might have any other reason to appear in court other than politics. Lloyd George replied, No, of course not. It was brilliant, but brilliance wasn't going to win a case for suffragettes in an Edwardian court. The women were convicted, fined, and, when they refused to pay their fines, jailed. That confirmed them as martyrs and won the movement still more publicity. Millicent Fawcett, leader of the suffragists as opposed to suffragettes in the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, had previously been impressed by the WSPU, who she felt had done more in two years to win recognition for the movement than her NUWSS had in 12. But, committed as she was to constitutional and legal forms of campaigning, she drew the line at violence, and the rush, in her view, had been violent. She told a fellow suffragist, Pippa Strachey, I feel most strongly the essential immorality of issuing a call to the roughs of London to come and rush the House of Commons. This was the beginning of a stark divergence between the two organisations over the legitimacy of violence. Not that the violence was one-sided. The state was as willing to resort to violence, and the thing about the state is that it has far more resources to get violent with. In 1908, Herbert Gladstone, then still Home Secretary, ordered that jailed women who turned to hunger strikes in protest should be force-fed. That meant feeding by way of tubes inserted through the mouth, or even, on occasions, the nostrils, and which was, quite simply, a form of torture. The problem over granting votes for women was that, while there was a majority in Parliament in favour, there was no agreement on how many women should be enfranchised. The difference, you'll remember, was serious. Limiting the number of women voters by a financial qualification would grant the vote only to wealthier individuals more likely to vote unionist. Extending the franchise to less well-off women would favour the Liberals and Labour. In 1910, the House of Commons set up a multi-party conciliation committee. It came up with a conciliation bill allowing the same women to vote for Parliament as already did for local government. That meant 
unmarried or widowed women who paid rates, local taxes. Only about a million women would be affected, and because they'd be relatively well off, they would be likely to favour the Conservatives over the Liberals. Some radical Liberals, including David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill, voted against the proposal, but it received a second reading in the Commons by 299 to 189. The next step would have been a committee stage and then third reading, but for that the bill needed parliamentary time, and Asquith called the general election for December that year, leaving parliamentary time only for official business. He did, however, promise that a new bill could be submitted in the next Parliament. But Parliament could mean any time in the next five years, whereas the next session would have meant the following year. Suffragettes decided it was time to let Parliament know they were running out of patience. 300 women set out on the 18th of November 1910 as a deputation to Parliament. A small group, including Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, sister of Millicent Fawcett of the suffragist NUWSS, as well as Emmeline Pankhurst of the suffragette WSBU, asked to see Asquith, who refused. Outside, things turned ugly. Over six terrifying hours, remembered in suffragette law as Black Friday, police beat the women and subjected them to sexual violence, including grabbing their breasts and twisting them. That caused not just great pain, but also sexual humiliation. When the American suffragette Elizabeth Freeman, who had joined her British colleagues on the deputation, complained to a policeman who had just grabbed her thigh, he replied, Oh, my old dear, I can grip you wherever I like today. The police threw women into the crowd where they would be further assaulted by hostile onlookers. Some of them, suffragettes would claim, police in plain clothes. The subject of the most famous, or rather infamous, of the few photos to have survived of the event shows the suffragette Ada Wright on the ground covering her head while a policeman looms over her and a gentleman from the crowd tries to protect her. That gentleman would be thrown to the ground himself immediately afterwards and she, hauled to her feet, was flung among the onlookers. A disabled woman was also brutally treated by police and then taken up a back street and left there after the tires on her wheelchair had been let down, making it impossible for her to move away. 115 women and four men were arrested. The following day, Winston Churchill, as Home Secretary, ordered all charges against them to be dropped on the grounds that prosecutions would serve no useful purpose. But before we get carried away by the apparent permissiveness of this liberal gesture, Let's note that he took a quid pro quo for it, also rejecting demands for a public inquiry into the behaviour of the police, even though that had been demanded by Parliament's own conciliation committee, which was sickened by the brutality. After the Liberals squeaked back into power at the December 1910 general election, a new conciliation bill was indeed presented to Parliament as Asquith had promised. As before, it offered a far more limited enfranchisement of women than the full equality of suffrage that the NUWSS would have wanted, but Millicent Fawcett's organisation decided to campaign for it all the same as a first step on which it could build later. It called for support from across the country, including the form of letters backing the measure from local government bodies. The 1911 measure again won itself a second reading by 255 to 88. 
Again, however, Asquith disappointed suffragists and suffragettes by refusing it the time it needed to complete its passage through the House. Next year, though, he faithfully promised if another bill got its second reading, he'd make sure it could progress. It was beginning to look like the government was just kicking the issue down the road, causing the necessary bills to be lost whenever they got close to being passed. Then, in 1912, Lloyd George decided to act, and in a way that it's a bit surprising he didn't do in either of the previous years. Worried by an approach that would enfranchise a lot more conservative voters than any others, he urged women's organisations to mobilise against the Conciliation Bill and instead throw their backing behind a move towards universal adult suffrage. Asquith promised to introduce a franchise bill to grant the vote to all adult males and to allow an amendment to it that would extend the same rights to all women too. That, however, just sounded like more delay to the WSPU, and it had had enough. It stepped up its campaign of violence. There were arson attacks on public buildings, including crowded theatres, and against the homes of anti-suffrage ministers. Dangerous chemicals were poured into post boxes. A hatchet was thrown at Asquith, though it missed him and instead slightly injured an Irish MP, and Emily Davison, to whom we'll be returning, attacked a perfectly innocent individual she believed was David Lloyd George in disguise. The aim of the violence was to pressurise a passive public into active backing of women's suffrage, if only in order to buy a return to peace. It, however, and I'm afraid this was entirely predictable, had the opposite effect. It turned off former supporters. When the third conciliation bill came up for a vote in the Commons in 1912, although it was essentially the same measure which had been passed by a large majority in 1911, it was defeated by 222 votes to 208, with many of the MPs who'd backed it before now switching sides. Hopes instead turned to the Franchise Bill, which the government had said it would allow to be amended to give women the vote. In January 1913, however, in a surprise ruling, the Speaker of the House of Commons, a Conservative, declared the amendment out of order. This was odd because similar amendments had been allowed in the past. It made no sense since the whole aim of the bill was for it to be amended in this way. As it happens, it's clear that Asquith was far from unhappy with this development. He wrote in a private letter that The Speaker's coup d'etat has bowled over the women for the session. A great relief. He was right. Women's suffrage was off the table again for the immediate future. That painful experience left a bitter taste in the mouths of suffragettes and suffragists. Indeed, it must have been particularly disappointing for the suffragists of the NUWSS, since they'd always been close to the Liberals, who had now let them down. That closeness was going to face some challenges now. And, in their shared resentment towards the Liberal Party, the WSPU suffragettes and the NUWSS suffragists would, once more, react in opposite ways. The WSPU had been closely associated with Labour, even to the extent, as we've seen, of being regarded by many as the women's section of the Labour Party. But they didn't like the low priority some in Labour gave to the question of votes for women, any more than they liked the commitment among many of those who were more enthusiastic to women winning the vote only as part of a move towards universal adult suffrage. In other words, only when all adult men also had the vote. The WSPU preferred to go for equality of suffrage, with women being given the vote on the same basis as men already enjoyed it. 
Full adult suffrage would take longer to achieve and might even be unattractive to some of the new members the WSPU was eager to recruit. That was because the movement was short of funds, a problem the leadership realised couldn't be solved by relying only on their early base of support, working-class women. They set out on a deliberate campaign to draw in wealthy women, which meant principally conservative women. Now, we've seen that conservatives might not regard universal suffrage as preferable to equal suffrage since they believe that poorer voters would be less inclined to vote for them. As a result, even a founder member of the Independent Labour Party like the movement's leader, Emmeline Pankhurst, who had grown disillusioned with Labour, and like many in the suffrage movement had lost faith in the Liberals, found herself being drawn towards the only other option, the Conservatives, both for financial reasons and increasingly on policy grounds too. At the same time as this rightward trend was developing, the Pankhurst's movement was becoming increasingly authoritarian. There was considerable opposition within the WSPU to the drift towards the Conservatives. Some members even began to refer to it as the Society Women's Political Union. A leading member, Theresa Billington Gregg, proposed a change in the WSPU's constitution to give the elected delegates at the annual conference the right to set policy, such as the decision whether or not to break with Labour. Emmeline Pankhurst's response was simple and autocratic. She cancelled the 1907 conference, where the proposal had been due to be discussed, and tore up the constitution. She announced that the movement needed military discipline, not democracy. Meanwhile, the NUWSS was moving the other way politically. It shared the WSPU's disappointment with the Liberals, but its response was to cultivate closer ties to Labour. The long-standing leadership, mostly made up of women from a wealthier background, such as Millicent Fawcett, didn't feel ideologically attracted towards Labour, and in particular disliked its commitment to socialism. But at least for the time being, until the Liberals came around to fully supporting women's suffrage, they would work with Labour instead. So, both on campaigning, whether by violence or through constitutional and legal means, and on political alliances with the Conservative or Labour alternatives to the governing Liberal Party, which had proved so unable to deliver, a rift was opening up between the two main women's suffrage organisations. At the same time, significant differences were emerging even within the WSPU itself. But that's something we can say for the next time we return to the women's movement. Thanks for listening.